0: The message today will be out of Genesis chapter 20 and if you would take a moment and turn there and follow along we will I will be reading from verses 1 through 18 From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur and he sojourned in Gerar and Abraham said But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, "What have you done to us? And now and now have I sinned <clears throat> and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do, do me at every place to which we come. and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore four chil- children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God.
1: See that, that grimace that John just gave me, that's because I, I had him read from a, a Bible, a microtext. We're working on. Uh, we're waiting on a pre-order of a giant print Bible that's on its way. But uh, I have it on good authority. When you turn over forty of which, John, I think you're just a little just made it. Makes it harder to see these small words. So, thank you, John, for reading that. Um, this this uh, this this story of Genesis 20 is really interesting, right? Because it just starts out straight out of the gate. Uh, as though it just picked up from Abraham um the uh, the first verse makes it sound like we've been talking about Abraham the whole time but we haven't we, we we went from uh chapter 18 Abraham has this negotiation around uh the city where lot is and then the whole chapter 19 is all about lot and his family and the escape the destruction we've got lot is is hiding out in the uh in the mountains with his daughters he's impregnated now and then it starts to talk about Abraham. And it's really interesting because if we didn't have this story in chapter 20, we would almost leave Abraham on this high water mark. Um, and it's almost as though by his grace, God allows us to see his his relentless pursuit of his own glory. He won't allow Abraham to become some kind of something that we would worship. And still, we've done that. Right? How many songs are there about Abraham and how wonderful he is. Of course, the New Testament talks about him and and calls him uh, Father Abraham, talks about he being a man of faith, but when we understand who he is, it helps us understand what what it means for us to be righteous believers. It's not about our perfection. It's about a legal transaction that occurred, and then that makes us available to pursue righteousness, And, and we'll see that in the story today. So, The important part here is that Scripture is relentless for God's glory. It will not elevate a man above God. And this passage or this chapter of Genesis chapter 20 is a perfect example not to miss. In chapter 12, we see Abram. His name has not changed. He's Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 11 through 13. Uh, So we're going back a few chapters. And we're going to see a very similar story. Maybe maybe that stood out to you. You feel like perhaps we've seen Abraham in a situation like this before. Genesis chapter 12, verses 11 through 13. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake abraham was finding the easy way out here perhaps maybe obscuring the truth a little bit a little bit of truth a little bit of lie and somehow god sees him through in spite of his many flaws in his contrived way of handling this situation. If we fast forward a tiny bit, Genesis 12, verses 17 through 20, we see the outcome. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife in all that he had. Now this is a bit of a low watermark, perhaps, for, for Abram. But this, From this point, he will become the man of faith who believed God. This becomes the man of faith who believed God why then a few chapters later in this story do we see him doing the same thing all over again and look at that you, you you see the way that Pharaoh reacts this is not just a problem between Pharaoh and and Abram this this is Pharaoh's entire house and that's going to happen again with the king that he encounters today and we'll look at that this is Abraham who would, Build altars, maybe maybe four altars across the various situations of his life. He would look at the land. We said when he was with Lot, he looked out at the the land and he said, "Hey, you can have any of this. Whichever way you go, I'll go the other way, so there wouldn't be strife between us and our families, so that the herdsmen wouldn't argue over who goes where. We've amassed great possessions, Abram, or er, excuse me, Lot. You pick the direction and the area that you want to go. I'll just go the other way. He allowed Lot to choose from the available land. He would rescue Lot from an invasion in a forward-looking spoiler alert. He will, Abraham, receive Melchizedek's blessing. And as we've seen already, he believed the Lord's promise for a son through his wife, Sarah. And this is what makes him be the man of faith. He believed God. He took what God said at his word, and he believed it. He understood it. Abraham will also witness God's covenant with him and become a man of faith. We see that he's the recognized in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 and verse 8, and there's lots of tie-ins between the book of Hebrews and these, these stories in Genesis, particularly the patriarchs, particularly Abraham, the father of nations. The book of Hebrews was, was written to the Jews so that they would understand how that ties to the new reality in Christ, the new priesthood in Christ. And it would remind them in Hebrews 11 that the man of faith who left his country by faith sought after God. He's the man of faith who would wage war against the kings of the east, as we saw in Genesis chapter 14. And we see that his faith is what makes him righteous. Going back again to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Salvation, no matter when in history, is always by the grace of God through faith. Abraham exercised faith by believing God's word. So I said we took a we took a single chapter break from where we left Abraham, where God appeared to him at the oaks of Mamre, and he promised the son Isaac through his wife Sarah. Th- this is where we left him off before they had the 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 story with Lot. Abraham then, as the uh, two men go off into the city of Sodom, Abraham talks with the Lord, and he negotiates for the city not to be destroyed if there are even 10 righteous people in it. Just 10 righteous people, and God is not going to destroy this city, this great city. But it gets leveled. It gets leveled. Lot leaves with his wife and with his daughters. His wife looks back, she's turned into a pillar of salt. So Lot and his two daughters escape to the mountains where they're now hiding. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1 picks up from chapter 18. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he joined he joined, he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, I'll mention this again, but it's very important to remember these people don't have the scripture that. We live in a wonderful time. Um, I said before, I used to think, wow, it would have been so great to have lived in times when the, when the Old Testament or the New Testament was rolling out because you're kind of you're hearing from God directly, you're seeing all these miracles. But the reality is, it wasn't a very frequent occurrence. It didn't happen universally for everyone. We get to see the entire counsel of God's word in the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation. We get everything that God has done that he— uh, saw fit that we would have for everything that we need for life we get to have in these scriptures and this God is coming to people in dreams. How would you like to hear that from God in a dream? and you know that it's God and you know that you're being spoken to by God and he says, you're a dead man because of what you've done. That's terrifying, right? like um John Nicholas was just sharing with me this morning in a personal moment of vulnerability how terrified he was last night at the lightning. I don't know how many of you heard the lightning last night, but uh, Tammy shared with me she had to hold him to stop his shaking for an hour. Pray for Tammy. Can you imagine the fear that you would wake up with, knowing that you were being addressed directly by God, saying, you're a dead man because of the woman that you've taken, for she is a man's wife. I can't imagine that. And this is a decade, maybe, after Abram used the whole Sarah is my sister line with Pharaoh in Egypt. He's doing the same thing. He's experienced so much with God. God has brought him through so much. He's entered into this covenant with God. God has told him what he's going to do. God has told him, you're going to have a child by your wife. And he's now resigning her over to someone to be taken into the king's harem and be part of his enclave of wives. The promised child is going to come through her a year from now. And he's saying, oh, no, but that's my sister. Genesis chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, a similar thing happens. Pharaoh called Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Just disgust with him. You would think after that. It's like one of those situations you feel. Can you imagine being being spoken to by Pharaoh like this, a powerful man in his own right, um, leader of of lots and lots of people, a king amassing tons of wealth, saying, "You just told me she was your sister. Take your wife and go." That's one of those moments where you feel low. Like if you've ever felt the kind of out of body experience before, where you know maybe someone is addressing you and you're you just like feel like I'm not even here right now. I think that would be how I would feel in that moment. There's nothing really that you can say. What you've done is awful. And so now, a few decades later, he is the man of faith, believing God who will deliver him and will deliver him offspring through his wife who he's turned over to the king. And so I think it's important to remember two things. One, we've already said that Abraham does not have the counsel of the word that we do. He has a few Encounters with God and his conscience. That's all he has. And number two, like us, he is affected by original sin. That is to say, it's it's so important to see what happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, God told them the kinds of things that were going to happen now, but the change had already occurred. They were already hiding from God before he got there. They severed the relationship with God they had. They doubted God's word. When the the enemy comes into the garden and suggests that God is withholding something good from them, they agree and they work against God. They function against God. They do the thing that he said not to do. And so they are doubting God. And so original sin, which came to us through that, is a severed relationship between people, all humanity, and God. When he came into the garden, they were hiding. They immediately had an awareness that they were naked. They were ashamed. And so just like us, there are pieces of that left behind in Abraham, even though he has believed on God in faith, he is still affected by original sin. So looking then at that second point, that like us, he's marred by original sin, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 in the first verse. And I want you to pen this scripture in your mind, write it on a piece of paper, put a Bible ribbon there. We'll be back as we continue through this study. But even generally, this is a very important principle for life. And this is part of the benefit of being a New Testament believer, is we have the whole counsel of God. And Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 tells us something very important about ourselves that we would do well to believe and we would do well to let us affect it as it's supposed to, which is to plant the fear of God in us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us there's there is so much in that little statement that we could focus on we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight you know what it, it feels like to try to, to to move and move quickly while you're burdened by weight? You can just imagine just, just, just physical weight on top of your body. Um, it slows you down. It makes everything harder. When you get older, it makes your knees squeak and pop even more. Lay aside those weights and sin, which clings so closely. Clinging, holding on, grasping, not letting go, dangling, always present. Sin which clings so closely. It's not far. It's not far off from you. It's not a distant memory. It's right there. It's holding on. It may not be ever present in front of you, but it's right there, ready to take over in any moment. It's like a weight that needs to be set aside. It's clinging. It's it's close. It's never far. Let us run let us run with endurance. Running with endurance is difficult. It's not like when you're a little kid and you just sprint from here to there. Running with endurance means you just keep going. And when your body hurts, you just keep going. And when you feel like you need to stop, you don't. You just keep going. Running with endurance, but not just running to survive. That's how I run. Uh, a, a, an actual running coach watched me run one time, a buddy of mine. Uh, he was actually a uh, I was in the same running group with him in the Army just because I'm too hateful to be slow, but I'm awful. And he watched me one time. and He said, John, watching you run actually hurts me. You're literally the worst runner I've ever seen in my life. Uh, his name is Nick DeLugo. Still love him. He's been to church here with us before, but he lives in Massachusetts. Pray for him, poor guy. The race that is being run is one that you, you want to win it. You want to be first. you don't just want to survive, you don't want to drag your body across the finish line. This is something that you're trying to perform well, and it's endurance. That's the Christian life. I wonder how much does our Christian life even look like a race that we're attempting to do well at a race that you're attempting to do well, You don't just show up on Race day for those of you strange people who participate in foot races. Like I don't know why you would do that, but if you do. You've probably trained for it all year. Uh, that same guy I talked to—he—he he was a—he was a Boston qualified marathon runner, and he said it is so strange being in the front of one of these races. He said you've got adult people crying, asking themselves why they did this to them themselves again. Off to the side of the road, throwing up. I think as believers, sometimes we just kind of show up to the party and just move through life as though there's no prize, there's no goal. We're just moving through. Now, I'm not trying to describe a life that's drudgery, right? Jesus said that his burden is light, but it's not nothing. We don't just move through this life with no concern for Christ whatsoever. That's why we say that lordship is important. The lordship of Christ is important. Jesus is Savior, wonderful. He died for our sin. He made a way for us to be with God. Um, There is no other way than through the man Christ Jesus, but he's also our Lord. And we respond to our Lord. We look to our Lord. All decisions should be filtered through our Lord. That's what Abraham did not have in his life. He just looked for the easiest path. And we could be like that sometimes too, just looking for the path of least resistance. That's the one I'll take. What about a life that honors God? What about a life that's set up to be setting aside the weight of sin that threatens to cling closely? And running an endurance race with eyes towards performing well, that should be our Christian life. I think Abraham was maybe not focused on God and God's glory and God's will, but Abraham maybe was focused on a favorable outcome because he'd been here before. He'd been faced with this exact situation, and and we can be like this too. We can kind of default into the same ruts, well-worn path. We know how to walk that way. Maybe it doesn't glorify God at all. Maybe it has no concern for God at all, but we know it, and we feel like we know the outcome. We know how it's going to work out. Forgetting that sin clings close and is a weight. And it stops us from running with endurance. And it stops us from running like it's a race. So was, was Abraham thinking about the promise of a son? when he set up a situation by which his wife would be turned over and become one of the king's many wives? I can't imagine Sarah's very happy about this. She doesn't seem to speak up, though, and mention, okay, I'm not, you know, partial truth. (laughs) Was he thinking about this unilateral covenant that God established with him that's guaranteed on God's word? Was he concerned for that? Remember, God, there was the covenant ceremony, where God laid Abraham out, you know, semi-conscious on the ground, unable to move, but able to see everything that was happening, and God entered into a legal contract saying, here's what's going to happen, Abraham, I'm going to guarantee all of this, and I'm going to do so at my word. And so that's why we see God rescues him from all of this, God's sovereignty, his grace, and in his goodness. He sees Abraham through this, even though Abraham messed up again. Now, the reality of things is that life is not black and white, right? It'd be great if it was in some ways, life was just black or white, and the decision was always really clear. But if you've lived more than a few years, you know that every decision isn't completely clear. Even as believers, we pray sometimes struggling, God, what, I don't. what's your will in this? I don't know what glorifies or honors you in either of these directions. Sometimes, We know that one doesn't, but we know it's really easy, and it's so tempting to just follow after a life of ease. So tempting to do the thing we know how to do. I know how to see my way through it. Christ died for my sin. I'll be forgiven of this. Why Paul said, should we continue in sin just so that grace would abound? Paul's asking, hey, I know that grace covers a multitude of sins, Should I make grace look even better by creating a huge pile of sin to be covered up? That's not the spirit of someone who realizes that their Lord and their Savior, who's the precious Lamb of God, died for every individual sin. You you wouldn't think that that life then would say, well, let me just pile up a few more. It's okay. life isn't black and white. Especially because we have elements, perhaps, of our broken past that— leave behind trails that we know how to walk down, or we know how to survive in those environments. We know at least how that works. But trusting God and going down some new path where I'm completely vulnerable, I don't feel like I'm in control anymore, that's scary. I don't, I don't, I'm not controlling this situation. I don't want to put myself in that place because then I have to rely on God. But maybe that's the point. Right? Maybe sometimes that is the point, for you to learn to trust God. And so acting in faith and saying, God, I do not know what's going on here. I can see a sinful way through this, and I know it works. I know that path because I've been down it a million times, but I'm going to go down the one that I think is more honoring to you, and I'm going to trust you in it. That's what faith looks like. That's what walking by faith looks like, and it's not easy. And people should stop describing the Christian life as some kind of an easy thing where you just stand under the spout where the glory comes out, and you get fed cotton candy every day. Not the way that the scriptures present the Christian life. It says you'll be tried like through fire. And all the more as the end comes near. So we need to remember Hebrews 12 and be ready and encouraged and desiring to lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely. I want to encourage you in this. If you believe, What the scripture says, then the trials of this life, while real and perhaps uncomfortable, are almost meaningless in light of eternity. Almost meaningless in light of eternity. A little bit of discomfort here is nothing compared to the wage, which is hearing these words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Good and faithful servant. I would so much rather hear that than depart from me. I never knew you. You are? Seems to be this is our first time speaking. That's why I love the model prayer. And the thing that stands out to me about the model prayer is Jesus telling us to pray for our daily bread. You know my position on that. We don't feel like we really need to do that. Uh, Daily bread for, I don't think, anyone in this room is a problem. For some of us, a little less daily bread would be a good idea. I didn't mean to look at that. Love what Hebrews 12 says in encouraging us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We would do so well if we would dwell on that and remember that and keep that in the back of our mind. You would do well if you woke up and read that every single morning, that sin is never far. It clings, and it's like a weight, and it drags you down as you're trying to move through this life like a race, unburdened, moving smoothly. The weight of sin. And the, the, the interesting thing about the weight of sin is sometimes we don't even realize it, but, but we can have patterns of habit that are tied to sinful activities, sinful situations, and we don't even know we're going down those paths. It could be happening every single day, and it just feels normal. Just sinful pattern. Maybe it's the way that you just naturally react towards people. Well, guess what? That might be sinful. You're not a victim of your personality. You might just be a jerk. You you, you might be unkind. It can feel habitually right. But as people who are redeemed in Christ, who are declared righteous and who have a race to run, we need to train for that race like we're after a prize, which means we need to consider ourselves before God. If we want to see how the God-man would react, we look to Christ. He's the one that lived in all ways, tempted and tried by sin, uh, but without sin. And so we can look to Christ and see, well, how did he do in these various situations? Well, that's how the very character of God would react in this life. 1 Corinthians, Paul uses a, another sports analogy, an ESPN analogy. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. He says, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run. That you may obtain it. That you may obtain. It. Run. That you may obtain it. Run in a way that's competitive. Run in a way that's looking to win, not just looking to live. That's how I run. Is looking to survive. I like to tell people that I am a Philadelphia uh, marathon uh, record placeholder, except that I ran the half in the time that the people were finishing the entire marathon that were setting records. I got to the finish line at the same time they did. Sink that in. They ran the whole race, and the time I ran half of it. Those are people that are racing to win a prize, and I bet you they don't wake up every morning and eat a bowl of cocoa pebbles and watch a little TV, and then kind of strut out of the house complaining about their back, uh, you know, and then sit in their office chair all day, and then get up and go home and eat some more cocoa puffs, followed up by a ribeye. Their lives are patterned to be able to perform in this kind of a way. That's the way that Hebrews says that we should live our lives. Imagine if Abraham had that. Imagine how he would live his life differently, but what about us because we do have that? Do we live our lives any differently, or are we like Abraham just looking for the easy way through? A little half-truth that will make me get through this situation more easily. It might not be as God-honoring. It may have no concern for God whatsoever, but I get through this situation without a lot of stress at work if I just do this, if I just say it in this way. might not be true, but I'll get through it. So Abraham is fearful of the situation of running into Abimelech's territory. He lies. He declares Sarah as his sister. As though sister, as a wife, isn't like the uh, predominant relationship here. I tell people all the time, I married my sister because Brianna is my sister in Christ, but also my wife. But I call her my wife, not my sister, for lots of reasons. Abraham fears running into this man. Mentioned she didn't step up and say, "Abe, I'm your wife." And so God comes to Abimelech through a dream, saying, "Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman." Whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife, not a dream I want to have, not words I want to hear from God. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. are yours. Abimelech had not approached her, meaning they didn't sleep together. She was part of the harem and a wife now, though they'd not codified that marriage, meaning that the pro- the child promised through Sarah would still come through Abraham. But look what he was putting at risk. We know ultimately it wasn't at risk because God had already guaranteed it. But this is God's grace that He's saving and bringing all of this through. Imagine the omniscience of God. Telling Abraham, I am going to deliver a son. He's going to come through your, through your own wife, going to be your child. Knowing all the while that Abraham's then going to be terrified of some local king and use the she's my sister line again. And he's going to come in a dream and stop the king from sleeping with his wife. He's going to come in a dream. He's going to close all the women's wounds of the entire city. Underneath this king, you'll see that in the last verse, God did a lot to make all of this happen. You see the omniscience and the omnipresence. You see all of the attributes that God at work here. You see His sovereignty. Sovereignty meaning, um, I think I've told the story before. uh, Like when you when we say sovereign, I had a friend. He's he's one of our missionaries now. He's on the field, and he used to say that you know uh, something makes God more robustly sovereign. And I said, man, that sounds really cool. That could be an entire book or a chapter in a book, but it doesn't mean anything. God can't be more sovereign. He's sovereign, and you can't have more sovereignty. Sovereignty means God does exactly what he wants, when he wants, and no one can affect that. God is sovereign. And so when he says, Abraham, you're going to have lots of offspring. They're going to come through your wife. That is exactly what's going to happen, and God is making sure that's true. And so when we look at Abraham's life, it's so important for us to see the grace of God all over this. By God's grace, he's seeing Abraham through all of this, and by God's grace, he sees us as believers through everything in our lives as well. That's what I think is so important not to miss about Abraham. Yes, he's the man of faith. Yes, he is the one that is elevated, is trusting God in his word, and yes, he messes up all the time. In very big ways. Not only did he lie in this situation, he put an entire kingdom of people at risk and at odds with God. All of the women's wombs were closed, there was no baby making going on. All because of this lie. In verse 7, we read now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. This is the very first mention in all of Scripture of the word prophet. And it's ascribed to Abraham. This is the only mention of prophet in the entire book of Genesis. Most of the prophets come later. And this prophet then is going to pray for him so that he shall live. This is the man, When we see now, we have the benefit of being New Testament believers. We know God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God takes this man who's lied about his wife, put an entire town of people at jeopardy, made it so that the king hears the words from God, if you don't do this, then you're a dead man. He's now declared to be a prophet and the one who communicates on behalf of others to God. What grace that God picks someone like that to be the one that would be his mouthpiece, would be the one that would represent the people before him. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning. I bet he did. And he called all of his servants. See, he's, he's a very powerful person, calling all the servants together. And he tells them about these things. And the men were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Remember, Abimelech is talking to a prophet. Abimelech is talking to somebody who represents God. God just told him in verse 7, Abraham's a prophet. He speaks for me. And so Abimelech is asking him, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister and the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do to me at every place where we come. Say of me, he's my brother. So early in the morning, the king calls all the servants together. And gives a briefing on what's happened overnight. God just said he's gonna kill me, and it's because Abraham lied about who his wife is. That's right, wife, not sister. So there's some some really interesting impacts that Abraham's lying had that reach beyond just this, these, these two people. Um, talking about the, the promised child, we're talking about the covenant that God had. Um, the the king in the way that he he addresses Abraham makes clear that he brought great sin to him and his entire kingdom he has implicated an entire kingdom of people Abraham's actions are a low light at best and for whatever reason God saw fit to allow them to be highlighted in an entire chapter of the book of Genesis so that we would not miss this story so that God is not sharing his glory with Abraham. Abraham is a man of faith, yes, because he believed what God said. Well, guess what? It shouldn't be very hard to believe what God says. That should be pretty automatic. If God says it, then yes, I agree. I forget exactly how the quote goes that uh, Pastor John shared before, and someone said, well, what about thus and such? Passions of Scripture, and the speaker immediately answers, well, I agree with it if it's in Scripture. Now we can look to see what it says. That's how I approach scripture. It says this. Well, great. I agree with that. Now, let's understand what it says. Let's make sure we know what was being communicated. Is it written to us? Was it written to another people? What does it mean in context? What kind of scripture is it? Is it poetic or is it instructive? Is it proverbial? The word is always right. And we, as New Testament believers, have the blessing of having it. But we need to engage with it. We need to read it. We need to look at it. And we need to consider ourselves against it. The easy temptation is to consider other people against the word. To think about people around you. To think about people that you know, but not yourself. When really we should test ourselves against the word. We should test all things, but we should we should desire to know what the word says and how we measure up to that so that we can make adjustments because remember, we're training for a race and we want to win it. We want to bring God glory by the way that we live. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So. We would do well then to ask ourselves, well, what kind of decisions are we making? Maybe right now, maybe we're making big decisions right now. Are we considering God in his glory? Are we considering what God has said? And sometimes we know what we want the answer to be, and so maybe we cherry-pick certain passages that we feel like are affirming, and maybe we disregard others. Are we engaging other believers around us and honestly seeking their opinion and their insight into the decisions that we're making? Are we asking people, show me in the word what you think about this. Pray with me about this. Remember, Jesus encouraged us to pray for our daily bread. Sometimes we don't even pray over huge decisions. That's troublesome. Jesus said, start with breakfast, right? (laughs) And then continue out throughout the day. How many times do we see Jesus going up to the mountain to pray? Uh, Before any major situation in Christ's life, it seems like it's the same situation every time. Nobody can find Jesus. That's because he's off by himself praying about what's going to happen throughout the day. He's not still in bed at 8 a.m. trying to wake up to the third alarm snooze. He's been up praying all morning because he's more concerned with God's will than he is with getting a few more winks of rest. So, we would do well to ask ourselves what decisions am I making right now? And am I running a race in a way that brings God glory? Even times when it doesn't feel like the easiest direction or path, we take it because God's worth it. I mentioned earlier a concept that has been largely erased from Christian memory, and we need it back, and that is the fear of God. And maybe you say, well, with fear of God, why should I be afraid of God? It's not about being afraid of God, cowering in the corner. It's having a healthy understanding of who God is. You know what? I just realized that my dad had a first name about a month ago because it was always Sir for so long. How much more, God? Sometimes I think we get a little bit bit chummy with the sovereign creator of the universe. We see all over the scriptures God dealing with humanity in very strong ways. And we've become so placated by a a kind of a a swimmy, squishy church culture who's more concerned with selling you scripture mints than they are with the glory and honor of a sovereign creator God. Um, They're really more interested in selling books and writing blogs that people read than they are you knowing who the creator is. They're more interested in you being comfortable and happy and the whole family coming to church than they are with you having a relationship with your Savior. And so I think we would do well to understand what the scriptures say about the fear of God. Proverbs chapter 1, you don't even go very far in Proverbs. This father passing on wisdom to his son about life. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says that the beginning of knowledge is fearing God. Beginning of knowledge. You start to get knowledge when you fear God. Again, it doesn't mean you're trembling in the corner. Just understand who God is. If you actually understand who God is, a healthy fear of Him makes a lot of sense. Consider Christ in Luke chapter 12 and verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear Him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That will change everything about your life. Because you either believe that or you don't. I mean, that's something you've got to make a decision right now. If you believe that, that you fear the one who can send you to hell after your death, then it'll change everything about your life. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Scripture says that to be absent from the body is to be present with God. That means at any moment when your body, your mind just decide to shut down, that you are now present with God. Will you stand on your merit? Will you say, well, God, I mean, I was a pretty good person. I think you observed me. I think you saw. How really good I was, even though Jesus himself said, none is good, my Father in heaven. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If able to mumble or murmur any excuse for myself, it will be Christ. That's all the representation I need. That's all the representation I have is Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. He is the the propitious offering for sin. He is the one who died on my behalf. He is the one by way, without Christ, there is no way to God. Imagine a healthy fear of God, how that would impact the running of your race. Um, I think we allow ourselves sometimes to become placated by this life. And so then we we, we mute the fear of God, we cling to sin, and it weighs so much, it's ready for us to succumb to it at any moment. Abraham, the, the father of the faith, did it here in this story for the second time after entering into covenant with God. What about us? Remember, we have the benefit of all of Scripture. Abraham didn't have that. He had a few encounters. Verse 14. Abimelech takes sheep and oxen, male servants, female servants. He gives them to Abraham. He returns Sarah, his wife. Abimelech says, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, I've given to your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God and healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and the female slaves so that they bore children. This was the, the the you know, with Pharaoh, God gave plagues. With Abimelech, God took away the, the ability for the, the, the women to bear children. I mean, these are the results of Abraham's sin, and God's, by his grace, allows Abraham to be not only righteous, but to be his prophet. When he prays that he's been restored, then, then God returns the ability to have children to an entire land of people. What incredible grace. Abraham now would no longer be an alien in the land. He's welcome to go wherever he wants. He's now even more incredibly wealthy than he was before. What a graceful God. God used this situation through his sovereignty for his glory. God glorified himself in spite of Abraham. Abraham followed after his own sinful desires, And God, for his glory and our benefit, allows us to see it. And so we would rightly be curious, if we were to go through the scriptures and not see events like this in Abraham's life, we would rightly be curious to say, why is Abraham placed on a pedestal? Why is he lifted up like this great hero of the faith? He is a hero of the faith, but he's a very human hero of the faith, and the Bible captures that perfectly. So I would encourage you, if you're in any environment where some human person is lifted up, and put on a pedestal as greater than all the other people, you should run from that place. If you see that happening here, that John or John or anyone in the room is lifted up as higher or more than anyone else, run out the back door and don't ever come back because that is not of God. That has to do with musicians and politicians And we're such a worshipful culture. We just worship anything that's the wrong thing. We worship brands. Um, Don't you think it's weird to wear a shirt with a name brand on the front? I'm not trying to make anybody feel weird wearing one right now, but isn't that weird? Like walking around with the name of a company on your chest. What? Why are you wearing your shirt says Nike? Like I just love that shoe company so much. There's just something about us that wants to worship and celebrate anything. You know, watch. Watch commercials on TV with like a discerning eye. It's strange. It's a weird life that we live. In. Verse eighteen: For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So now this whole town of people, though by God's grace and glory, has encountered the very power of God. They've seen the man of God pray for them. They've seen all of this be relieved. They know that their king was encountered in a dream because they might have sinned against God. And so now God is about the work of reaching others. God declares what happens to them if they continue, and then we see God restore the women. Why? Because of repentance, turning back on bad ways, fixing situations. Imagine having a healthy fear of God and how that would impact us as we run our own race. You know, I I think one of the greatest dangers to us in our lives, in this world that we live in, is being placated by this life, muting the fear of God, and clinging to sin that weighs so much and is ready for us to succumb to it. Abraham, the great father of the faith, did it here in this story for the second time after entering into the covenant, but now has opportunity to move on past this, and, and we have that as well. We, we get encouragement from James chapter 2 and verse 23, which says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. James goes even a step further. Abraham was a friend of God in spite of his performance flaws. Jeez, that should encourage us. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Galatians 3, verse 11, It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. And that's our charge, to live by faith, to encounter God, see him and trust him at his word that Christ is the Savior Lord. We have at every waking moment, as long as we have breath, we have the opportunity to turn to Christ. to to repent of our sin, to turn to trusting Christ, and then he will change us from that point on. Look at Abraham, the man of faith, having been declared a man of faith, having entered into the covenant, having been given the promise, but still in the midst of sinning. And what does God do? Does he judge him and strike him dead? No, he blesses him. He blesses him. He steps into the situation and he fixes it because that's what a loving father does for his children. He fixes the problem. And if you're a mom or a dad, you know exactly what I'm talking about. No matter what, other, what stupid thing your kids get into, you try to fix it. What a loving God. I think sometimes we, we think he's, a, he's an awful taskmaster, but don't read that into this. See him loving everyone through this entire situation. You have a king who has a harem full of wives, and he comes to him with grace. He comes to him with grace based on what he knows. What a wonderful God, and it's all for his glory. He would not let it be turned over and given to Abraham, turned into a man to be worshiped, but one that we can align ourselves to and see just like him, we have sin that clings to us. So we don't look to him in judgment. We look to him in understanding and appreciation and become grateful for God. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you've allowed us this beautiful picture of Abraham. A righteous man, a man of faith, your friend who, in a moment of weakness, sought after himself, endangered an entire people, but you, God, because of your grace and your goodness and in your sovereignty, stepped into the situation and fixed it. Who loved everyone through it. God, we thank you for these truths. We thank you that it applies to us, and we thank you that we have Christ as our advocate. I pray knowing all of the freedom of that, God, that you would give us grace as we work to train to run the race of this life in ways that bring you glory and honor multiply. God, would you give us hearts of repentance, continuous repentance? Would you give us hearts that look for opportunities to grow in grace, to find areas of sin in our lives and put them to death, God? Would you make us not afraid to do that as believers, God, I pray if anyone doesn't know you savingly this morning that you would reach them right now, God, and they would become yours in Christ. And we as a church body would have the the wonderful blessing of walking alongside them and discipling, looking at the word, living and praying and growing in grace together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.